Roberts on LBC. So, as I mentioned, I'll take more of your calls on the Colston 4 verdict after we cross to uh, America for our weekly catch-up with LBC's US correspondent, Simon Marks. And, Simon, we should start with the latest on today's tragic fire in New York City. Yeah, devastating news, actually. Uh, at around 11 o'clock uh, on Sunday morning, a fire began in this 19-storey uh, apartment building in the Bronx. That, of course, is east of Manhattan. Uh, and it started in a two-storey unit on the second and third floors of the building, but very, very rapidly spread. Fire crews arrived three minutes after the first emergency call uh, came in and they immediately found a building that was engulfed in smoke and fire. Uh, the fire commissioner in New York says uh, that the front door to the flat where the fire had, been, had begun was left open and that, of course, allowed the flames very rapidly to spread. Victims, according to the fire department, were found on every floor and were taken out, many of them suffering from cardiac and respiratory arrest. 32 people were transported to hospitals uh, in what uh, the mayor of New York, Eric Adams, uh, who's only just taken over as mayor of New York City, uh, describes as life-threatening conditions and we know that among the dead uh, were a substantial number uh, of small children. Here's what Eric Adams had to say at the scene of this fire uh, in the Bronx, uh, just a few hours after the alarm was first raised. Uh, this is a horrific, horrific, painful moment for the city of New York. And the impact of this fire is going to really bring a level of just pain and despair in our city. The numbers are horrific. And he described the fire in historic terms. He said it's going to be one of the worst fires that New York City uh, has witnessed uh, during modern times. I think it's worth underscoring that this comes uh, just a matter of days after another very similar, similarly deadly fire in Philadelphia uh, that took place in a row house in Philadelphia and left a dozen people dead, all members uh, of one big extended family. In that case, uh, the fire department found that 18 people had been living inside that particular four-bedroom flat where the uh, fire began. That's triple the number of people that were anticipated. And I think that both of these fires, coming as they have done uh, in uh, predominantly um, uh, poorer, uh, predominantly black neighbourhoods of Philadelphia and New York City, respectively, uh, are going to put a new intensity of focus on the fact that even in the modern era there are all sorts of uh, people in poorer communities living in very cramped very uh, potentially dangerous housing conditions I mean it's not entirely similar of course to the Grenfell blaze because there's no cladding involved in either of these uh, blazes but the rapidity with which this fire in New York uh, on a Sunday morning was able uh, so quickly 
Italy to inundate an entire building. And you just see the images of this building with, uh, at every floor, windows that have been smashed by uh, occupants inside the building who were desperately uh, trying to find a way out and also desperately looking for some air to get into the building as uh, the smoke uh, suffocated them. It is an absolute tragedy and a, a real challenge now for the new mayor uh, of New York City, Eric Adams. He was only uh, sworn in on uh, New Year's Day at the stroke of midnight on New Year's Eve uh, and suddenly he's got to deal with this uh, very unexpected tragedy. Okay, uh, let's talk about uh, Joe Biden. He was um, given a speech, wasn't he, that uh, a lot of people in his party were you know, waiting for him uh, to uh, attack the previous president, Donald Trump, and he just hasn't been inclined to, to do that up to this point. But that's sort of changed, but without him actually mentioning him by name. Well, he didn't mention him by name, but he kept referring to my predecessor and the former president. I have to say, I can't quite understand what the purpose was of not mentioning him by name at that point. But, uh, look, this was a very, very different speech by D Joe Biden, far and away, by a country mile, uh, the most intense, focused, passionate and angry speech that he has made as president. It was the first time, in fact, I think during the course of his presidency, when you could actually hear the old Joe Biden, the uh, Joe Biden who was uh, uh, a senator, uh, was uh, an absolute firebrand orator. I mean, all of that appeared to desert him, uh, both on the campaign trail and in the first several months of the presidency. He's never brought, for example, similar passion to any of the numerous addresses to the nation that he's made on COVID-19 or any of the other major issues uh, besetting the country. But he absolutely opened fire uh, on Donald Trump in that speech, accusing him of being not just a uh, former president, but a defeated former president, insisting that uh, Donald Trump uh, continues to make efforts to call into question the legitimacy of an entirely fair 2020 presidential election. But it was it was interesting that in the speech, he devoted an enormous amount of time, of course, to excoriating the rioters who on January the 6th, a year ago, that was the event that he was commemorating, the insurrection on Capitol Hill, ransacked the Capitol having been incited to head there uh, by former President Donald Trump. But he then spent an enormous amount of time within the speech defending his own legitimacy to sit in the Oval Office. And uh, I don't, I'm not sure that that was the original plan for this event commemorating the first anniversary of the January the 6th insurrection. The idea that, you know, we're almost a year into uh, Joe Biden's presidency... And yet he has to defend his mere right to be sitting in the Oval Office as relentlessly Donald Trump continues to promulgate the entirely false claim that the election was rigged in a way, plays right into Donald Trump's hands. And it was apparent that the former president was relishing all of this. He cancelled his own plans uh, to hold a press conference on uh, January the 6th, but he put out three separate... Uh, a 36-hour period, instructing his supporters uh, never to stop fighting the crime, as he put it, of the 2020 presidential election and never to give up. So I think there is a debate within Democratic Party circles about, you know, what was the point of Joe Biden's speech? I mean, yes, he kind of may have succeeded in mobilising his own side uh, to mark January the 6th as an historic event and once again to redouble uh, efforts to uh, persuade 
read uh, the American public that the 2020 presidential election was legit. But at the same time, he gave Donald Trump a real opportunity once again to go out there and fire up the base. But it's an incredible statistic that 70% of Republicans still believe that Donald Trump won the last election. Well, it's not even still believe. It's that 70% of Republicans now believe that Donald Trump won that last election because that number keeps growing. If you'd looked at that number, you know, three, four months ago, it wasn't as high as that. So it, it, Donald Trump looks at those numbers and sees evidence that his campaign continually to question the legitimacy of that race is certainly working among Republican voters and it appears to be working among voters broader than that, more than 30% of all voters in the United States now believe that Joe Biden didn't legitimately win the 2020 presidential election. And, you know, you and I talked about this during the course of the election campaign. It was apparent from the very earliest moments of the campaign when Donald Trump started warning that the election was going to be crooked, which was essentially his insurance policy for when he lost, he would still be able to claim that he won. That effort by Donald Trump was all about trying to make Joe Biden illegitimate in office from the moment that he took the oath of office. And at the time, that seemed like a bit of a high-stakes uh, bet by Donald Trump, but he's actually achieved it. I mean, here we are a year into what may well be Joe Biden's only four-year term in the Oval Office, and he's still having to make speeches in which he defends not just the sanctity of the electoral process in uh, general overarching terms, but he specifically has to push back against this nonsense that the 2020 election was somehow stolen and rigged. And the fact that he felt the need to do that again is a, a pretty interesting insight into just how much headway Donald Trump has made with this campaign. It's, it's like they're living in an alternate reality. Is it because they're all watching right-wing news channels like Fox, which are continuing to tell them that what they believe, this, this, this sort of hysterical uh, scenario that they've constructed for themselves, is, is actually true? Yeah, I think they are absolutely um, washing themselves on a daily basis in uh, fountains of media that spout precisely the kind of news and information they want to receive. That's not, by the way, a unique phenomenon on the right uh, of, of uh, U.S. politics. You can find similar fountains on the left of U.S. politics that are uh, reaching uh, a left-wing uh, audience. Uh, I, I do think, I mean, we talk a lot about Fox News and Newsmax and OAN, those right-wing television channels, justifiably. But I think there's also more to it than that. It's apparent now that there are uh, various internet uh, TV shows, you know, video streamed programs, that are really even more influential on the right than some of those uh, cable channels. For example, Steve Bannon, the man who was uh, Donald Trump's uh, kind of Svengali, the man who basically created the Trump presidential campaign, the architect of Donald Trump's election victory, he holds a, he hosts a daily uh, program on YouTube that essentially is must-see TV for the Trump loyalists 
and absolutely gives them their marching orders. And that's just one of a whole array of different uh, conservative media outlets that are out there. Donald Trump sat down for an interview last month with a uh, conservative uh, host by the name of Candace Owens. Never saw the interview on television, but it was widely seen and shared uh, online. Uh, and uh, there are a number uh, of different outlets like that where people don't even have to turn on the TV to encounter the kind of direct-to-consumer information that they want. And I think one of the things we're all going to need to do as we, we get into this next election cycle, the midterm elections this November and then the presidential election in 2024, is realise that actually these silos um, are, are using the modern tools of the era that take you even beyond what happens on television channels like Fox and Newsmax and the others. These are highly niche, uh, far-right uh, pro-Trump media channels, and they'll soon be joined uh, by Donald Trump's own uh, social media platform, Truth Social, which he's planning to launch next month, and they absolutely uh, preach to the choir. Uh, the the tail is wagging the dog in, in a lot of cases, isn't it? I mean, there was this example this week of uh, Ted Cruz, the representative from <laughs> Texas, who um, said that the Capitol riots were the actions of terrorists. Um, I, I don't know quite what, um, th where he was when he, he said that. It was the... Uh, the, the it was a Senate hearing. Right, it was okay. a Senate hearing, yeah. And then Tucker Carlson, who's this um, foaming host on Fox News, had him on uh, because Carlson went berserk and uh, just at the very idea that these people should be called to terrorists as opposed to, I presume, patriots. And then uh, uh, Ted Cruz sort of backed down and um, gave a fulsome apology. It, it, it was excruciating. It was an absolutely excruciating piece of television to watch. Tucker Carlson, of course, the high priest of uh, Trumpian orthodoxy at this point, the most watched program on cable in the United States is invariably uh, his nightly show on the Fox News channel. Uh, it turns out, by the way, that Senator Cruz, and, and let's just remember, we're not talking about some, you know, left-wing socialist liberal here. A year ago, when the insurrection happened on Capitol Hill, Ted Cruz was one of the central players in efforts to try and block Joe Biden's election victory and deliver the keys of the White House back to Donald Trump. So uh, the notion that in the course of the last year, Ted Cruz now finds himself in a position where he's being hauled over the coals by Tucker Carlson and having to grovel before him on television to apologize for having used this word terrorist uh, to describe uh, the deadly rioters that were involved in uh, the deaths of uh, at least one police officer uh, on the day. There were uh, four police officers ultimately whose deaths are uh, uh, believed to have been um, tied to the events of January the 6th it is absolutely extraordinary. It turns out that Ted Cruz has used that word terrorist on numerous occasions over the last year uh, when he's described the rioters who killed uh, at least one of the Capitol Hill police officers but suddenly when he used it in that Senate hearing, uh, Tucker Carlson was all over it. Uh, and the next thing we knew, Ted Cruz decided to go on the programme 
because I think he wanted to try and find a way back in the minds of many of Donald Trump's supporters who had come down on him like a like a ton of bricks for using that phrase. It, it, the, the, the idea that you would talk about them being anything other than patriots is anathema uh, to uh, the former president and to his supporters. And there was another indication of just how far the Republican Party has moved last Thursday, and that was when Nancy Pelosi uh, convened a, a session of the House of Representatives to give members of the House of Representatives to observe a minute's silence to honour the fallen police officers who had died uh, in the events relating to January the 6th. There were only two Republicans present in the chamber for that. The Democrats were all there in great numbers. Only two Republicans. One of them, Congresswoman Liz Cheney uh, of Wyoming, of course a traitor to Donald Trump because she voted to him impeach him. And the other, she was flanked by her father, former Vice President Dick Cheney, the man we all used to think was the Darth Vader of right-wing politics in the United States, the Prince of Darkness during the George W. Bush era. Well, they were the only two that were sufficiently courageous to show up on Thursday and observe that minute of silence. All the others were so terrified of brooking Donald Trump's fury that they stayed away. And that shows you just how far the Republican Party has been dragged by Donald Trump. It's completely in his thrall still. And there were, it was almost impossible uh, on Thursday to encounter a moderate voice of the Republican Party. They have all been marginalised and silenced. And they're represented by this, um, this foaming host, Tucker Carlson, who um, referred to the arrests of the people that uh, were responsible for the riot on Capitol Hill. He, he referred to that, um, the, those arrests as a purge, as in removing from an organisation or place in an, an, an abrupt or violent way a group of people considered undesirable mm. by the authorities, as though he doesn't think that that was an undesirable uh, scenario, the, the, the riot. Or, or maybe he meant purge as in the, la the actions of a laxative, <laughs> as, in your, well, as in America needs an enema. Well, well, you could certainly advance that argument. He uh, he wouldn't uh, play any of Joe Biden's speech on his program because he insisted the country wasn't uh, interested in hearing it, uh, which is an interesting uh, decision for, for him to reach. Uh, Governor Ron DeSantis, a sort of a mini-me of Donald Trump down in Florida, similarly refused to answer questions from reporters about Donald Trump's speech. He insisted that it wasn't something that Floridians cared about. They wanted to talk about other pressing issues uh, instead. Uh, I mean, just this idea that you have someone like Tucker Carlson in that position uh, of power every single night on American television uh, raises huge questions, I think, for the country going forward. How is American television going to handle uh, another Donald Trump presidential candidacy if he does indeed run for office again in 2024? Are they going to give him equal time with uh, Joe Biden? Are they going to uh, suggest... Uh, that the weight of the arguments that he advances uh, with regard to the 2020 presidential election have any kind of validity whatsoever. It's going to be a monumental challenge for the media and for society more broadly. This is a, uh, you know, this is a country that is still 
a very vibrant two-party political system. Perfectly possible to imagine the Republicans win control of Congress this November and then win the presidency again in 2024. But what kind of Republican Party is that? Certainly nothing like any kind of Republican Party that we've seen in government uh, in the past, with the exception of Donald Trump's four years in the White House. Simon, take care. I think the country you're in has jumped the shark. No question about it, Nick. Talk to you next week. That's Simon Marks, LBC's US correspondent, back with us at the same time next weekend.